We'll be in Romans chapter 8 again, verses 12 through 17. Before we get there, I'd like to share a story, a story that's found in the book Proof, Finding Freedom Through the Intoxicating Joy of Irresistible Grace. Daniel Montgomery is one of the two authors, and he shares a story about their adopted daughter. He said, I never dreamed that taking a child to Disney World could be so difficult, or that such a trip could teach me so much about God's outrageous grace. Our middle daughter had been previously adopted by another family. I am sure this couple had the best of intentions, but they never quite integrated the integrated our daughter into their family of biological children. After a couple of rough years, they dissolved the adoption, and we ended up welcoming an eight-year-old girl into our home. For one reason or another, whenever our daughter's previous family vacationed at Disney World, they took their biological children with them, but they left their adopted daughter with a family friend. Usually, at least in the child's mind, this happened because she did something wrong that precluded her presence on the trip. And so by the time we adopted our daughter, she had seen many pictures of Disney World, and she had heard about the rides and the characters and the parades. But when it came to, pass, came to passing through the gates of the Magic Kingdom, she had always been the one left on the outside. Once I found out about this history, I made plans to take her to Disney World the next time I was, had a speaking engagement that took my family to the southeastern United States. I thought I had mastered the Disney World drill. I knew from previous experiences that the prospect of seeing cast members and freakishly oversized mouse and duck costumes sometimes turn children into squirming bundles of emotional instability. What I didn't expect was that the prospect of visiting this dream world would produce a stream of downright devilish behavior in our newest daughter. In the month leading up to our trip to the Magic Kingdom, she stole food when a simple request would have gained her a snack. She lied when it would have been easier for her to tell the truth. She whispered insults that were carefully crafted to hurt her older sister as deeply as possible. And as the days and the calendar moved closer to the trip, her mutinies multiplied. A couple of days before our family headed to Florida, I pulled our daughter into my lap to talk through her latest episode. She said, I know what you're going to do. You're, going to take, you're not going to take me to Disney World, are you? The thought hadn't actually crossed my mind, but her downward spiral suddenly started to make some sense. She knew she couldn't earn her way to the Magic Kingdom. She had tried and failed that before. So she was living in a way that placed her as far as possible from the most magical place on earth. In retrospect, I'm a little embarrassed to admit that in that moment, I was tempted to turn her fear into my own advantage. The easiest response would have been, if you don't start behaving better, you're, you're right. You're, we won't take you. But by God's grace, I didn't. Instead, I asked her, is this trip something we're doing as a family? She nodded, brown eyes wide and tear-rimmed. Are you a part of this family, I asked. She nodded again. Then you're going with us. Sure, there may be some consequences to help you remember what's right and wrong, what's wrong, but you're a part of our family, and we're not leaving you behind. I'd like to say that her behaviors grew better in that moment, but they didn't. They continued to spiral out of control. But she was no, long, no less a part 
of our family, no less a part of our daughter whom we deeply loved. This morning, we come to Romans 8, 12 through 17, where we were reminded of our adoption hope. We were reminded that we are deeply loved. We were reminded that in Christ Jesus, we have a father who reminds us that we are part of his family, that what his family does, what his family is a part of, we are a part of also. So let's read Romans 8, 12 through 17. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the adoption that we have in Christ Jesus, that you have adopted us as your sons, as your daughters, as your dearly loved children. Lord, we pray that, I pray that as we come to our text today, Lord God, that we would be reminded of this great truth, Lord, reminded of our status as beloved, and Lord, that we would find in that a reassuring hope. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we began our Advent series titled, A Thrill of Hope, The Weary World Rejoices. And we said that we're all a little weary, maybe even a lot weary. In Advent, we're reminded that God comes and meets us in our weariness, that He is coming again to make all things new, to renew us, to, as Isaiah says, as God through the prophet Isaiah says, that They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. We said that for many of us, this feeling of weariness comes because we feel condemned or under judgment by other people or maybe even by God himself. But Paul reminds himself, because he needs this reminder as much as we do, that there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus The chapter begins with Jesus and ends with Jesus, we said. It begins with no condemnation and will end with no separation. We saw that because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, we have hope. Liberation hope and new life hope. And this liberation hope and new life hope gives us a firm foundation of our hope to rest upon. This hope that we have of who Christ is and what he has done and that he is coming again. This gives us a firm foundation to rest that hope upon. But 
Our hope doesn't end there. Paul continues to develop why there is no condemnation or separation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Right? He continues to develop this idea throughout this chapter, why there is no. It's not just because there's no condemnation because we've been liberated and we have new life. Paul continues to develop this because we might believe that we've been liberated from sin and have new life in Christ. But maybe we might think it could all be taken away. Right? We sometimes wonder if God really loves us or has given us this new life. Maybe God could just take it all away. In our passage, Paul continues with this line of thinking from the previous section, coming back to the importance of the Spirit in the life of the Christian. The Spirit calls us and empowers us to live in liberation hope, to live this new life, to give us the ability to put to death the deeds of the body and to live, to truly live. And not only does the Spirit give us strength and power, but the Spirit confirms whose we are. The Spirit speaks to those fears that we sometimes wonder if God really loves us. The Spirit speaks to our fears. That this new life can be taken. The Spirit speaks to our fears that this is just God using me or using us. That's kind of what Paul is getting here when he talks about this spirit of slavery, falling back into this spirit of, of slavery to sin, but also this idea of that maybe God is just, the best he's called me to is, is slavery to him. But the Spirit speaks, Paul says. He confirms whose we are, we are children of God. The main point of our text today is because we have been adopted by the Father, we have hope. We have the hope of a child. We have the hope of an heir. First, the hope of a child in verses 15 through 16. You see, the, the spirit of adoption or sonship stands in opposition to the spirit of bondage. See, Paul is reminding us that we have been freed from slavery to sin and this new spirit that we have is not one of slavery like it was to to sin. We are no longer slaves like we were to sin. We're not now just forgiven of our sin, but now that we're, we're somehow slaves to God, we have a new spirit. We have a spirit of adoption We see here that we pass from a state of alienation from God and of bondage under law and sin into relationship with God, of mutual confidence and love, of unity of thought and will. All the things that should characterize the ideal family. There is restraint and compulsion and fear have passed away. All those things, restraint and compulsion and fear have passed away in this new relationship that we have in Christ Jesus, this adoptive 
relationship as sons and daughters. And what's interesting is that theologically, adoption is closely related to justification, and sometimes some people will view them simply as being, as adoption simply as an aspect of justification. Both are legal terms, which is sometimes why that's, they're thought that way. Both terms indicate that sinners are by ourselves unworthy, but are received by God and given a new title to eternal life on the basis of Christ's redeeming work and not our own. Right? Justification is this understanding of a, a merciful judge setting the prisoner free of canceling the debt while adoption is the act of a generous father taking a child into his embrace and endowing him with liberty, favor, and a heritage that was not theirs before. Adoption is God's act in his eternal process of his gracious love. For in Ephesians 1, 5, Paul reminds us, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ unto himself according to the good pleasure of his will. You see, this isn't just something that God the Father just suddenly one day was like, oh, this would be a good idea. Just, I'm going to adopt John or you, Chuck. God, Paul says, has had this as his eternal process of his gracious love from eternity past. He chose us in Christ Jesus as his sons and daughters. Adoption signifies being granted the full rights and privileges of sonship in a family that we don't belong to by nature. We are brought into this heavenly family, which we have no rights on our own, but now we have God as Father. And the Father knows the physical and spiritual needs of His children, and His providential care supplies everything necessary for our temporal and eternal welfare. We're told in Psalm 103 that we read as our call to worship. In Matthew 6, Jesus reminds us of those things as well. Not even a hair can fall from our heads without his knowledge, Jesus says in Matthew 10. And Paul goes so far in this idea, this idea of adoption, this reality of adoption that we have by the Father. He goes so far, he's so audacious to say that this is, so true, so real that we can cry Abba to our Father in heaven. As you've probably heard before, the Aramaic word Abba, that's Abba is not Greek, it's an Aramaic word. It's the, the language that, the everyday language that Jesus and his disciples would have spoken. It means dear Father or some might say dad or daddy. 
Jesus alone used it. It was the way that he himself spoke to the Father, spoke with the Father, interacted with the Father. And you remember that Jesus uses that term in Gethsemane when he cries out to his heavenly Father to take this cup from him. We also believe that this is the term that Jesus would have used had we had the Lord's, what we call the Lord's Prayer in Aramaic. Our Father, Abba. And here, Paul takes that. He takes that reality of, of Jesus not only using that term himself, but giving it to us, his people, when he teaches his disciples to pray. And Paul takes that and he says, we are so, this adoption is so true, so real. The reality of it is so rich that you, like Jesus, come to your heavenly Father as Abba. The Holy Spirit compels us Paul says, to cry, Abba, Father. Jesus, through the Spirit, has given his own special name for God to us. And as we are in Christ, it becomes our natural cry to a loving Heavenly Father our relationship with God the Father, the creator of the universe. Right? Think about this. Our relationship individually to God the Father, the creator of the universe, is so intimate that Jesus and Paul picking up this theme invites us, in a sense, to crawl into the lap of our Father and cry, Daddy. You know, many have never known a meaningful relationship with an earthly father, or some have, but now he's gone. But God offers his soul-satisfying paternity to all who come to him. Abba, Father. We have the hope of a child, one that our dad can do anything. A hope that our dad is always there for us a hope that our dad will never let us down. Even for those with the best earthly fathers, we know that those hopes do not always come to fruition. But God, our Father, never disappoints.
We don't just have the hope of a child of God. We have the hope of an heir. Paul goes on to develop this idea of adoption, of what this fully means. Yes, there's this intimacy that we have with the Father, this hope that we have because of this intimate relationship we have. But he goes on in verse 17 to say that the Spirit bearing witness that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Paul uses this term here to explain a full possession of all that sonship means in the new age, in the new age of of Christ. But it also, but it's not so much about ownership as it is relationship that he has in mind, going back to this idea of adoption. He speaks of being heirs of God as a piece of imagery to help us understand what does it mean that we are actually children? How does this actually function? Besides this intimacy that we have with with the Father, what else does this provide us? Well, to become an heir, right, would mean that the parent or the father would die. I mean, since God does not die, this inheritance is not exactly the kind of inheritance that we would normally think about. But the heir here that Paul is speaking of is in possession of privilege as a result of the place that we have in the family. Paul is speaking of sons and of children. We're in a privileged position because of our membership in the family, the family of God. And we are co-heirs with Christ. We are heirs with Christ to all that is his. And that is, I think, difficult, at least for me, to understand this side of glory. What does it mean that we are co-heirs with Christ of all that is his? But at the very least, to be an heir is surely one of dignity, assuring us of our place in the heavenly family, in the family of God, where he is the son where he is the son of God. And what's interesting is that Paul, both here and in Galatians, uses the term sons, but he also transitions it to children. And so we know he's not just talking about males. He's talking about sons and daughters. He's talking about male and female. But what's interesting is that the reason, one of the reasons that Paul likely uses this idea of son of that we are adopted as sons and not just using children like he does later in the passage, is to, to even give us a better understanding of what this means that we are heirs, right? Because in that culture, sons were the heirs, right? The eldest son was the biggest heir. He received most of the family fortune, most of the family land, most of what the family had was given to the eldest son as his inheritance. And then the other sons would be given smaller portions. Right? You remember the, the par- parable, right, of the prodigal son? 
right? The, the younger son, it, it wasn't like he didn't have anything from his inheritance. He comes to the father and asks for his portion, right? The sons were the ones who received portions of their family's fortune, their family's estate. But Paul is saying here, it's not just sons who receive the entire estate. It's sons and daughters that even in a culture that highly esteemed sons, that sons were thought of as the best, that our heavenly father views his sons and daughters as the best, equally. Loving and caring for them equally. Giving making them both equal heirs to what was not theirs but is theirs in Christ. And what's, and Paul ends with a somewhat weird aspect of this becoming heirs with Christ at the end of our passage. Paul writes, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Some people believe that, well, some people think that this is a condition, right? That we must suffer in order to achieve this. What Paul is doing here is he's just making a statement. He's making a statement. There is no, there is no aspect that we could suffer to become heirs of all that God in Christ Jesus gives us. Christ has done the suffering. Christ has done all that is required. But what Paul is just saying here is just a matter of fact, that there will be suffering in this life, that there will be suffering because of our relationship with Christ, that there will be suffering in this life because we are a part of the family of God. We share the consequences in terms of opposition from the world that Jesus, our older brother, came to save. So as members of the family, we share in the trials, but we also share in the benefits. But in those trials, Jesus, our big brother, is with us. Our Father is there holding us, never letting us go. We are glorified with Jesus. As I said, Their adopted daughter's choices pretty much spiraled out of control. At every hotel and rest stop, all the way to Lake Buena Vista, she continued her spiral of despair. 
Still, we headed to Disney World on the day that we had promised. And it was a typical Disney day, overpriced tickets, overpriced meals, a lot of lines mingled in with just enough manufactured magic to consider maybe coming back again someday. In our hotel room that evening, a very different child emerged. She was exhausted, pensive, and a little weepy at times. But her month-long facade of rebellion had faded. When bedtime rolled around, I prayed with her, held her, and asked, so how was your first day at Disney World? She closed her eyes and snuggled down into her stuffed unicorn. And after a few moments, she opened her eyes ever so slightly. Daddy, I finally got to go to Disney World. He said, yes, you did. She goes, but it wasn't because I was good. It's because I'm yours. It wasn't because I was good. It's because I'm yours. That's the message of God's grace, of his love for you and me as his adopted children. This is our adoption hope, where your heavenly Father says, you are mine. And we can look into our Heavenly Father's face and say, because I'm yours. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can call you Abba. Lord, that you have adopted us. Lord, that you have chosen us in Christ Jesus that you have said you are mine. Lord, that you love us with a never giving up, always and forever love. Lord, that no matter what we do, no matter what comes against us, cannot separate us from your love, cannot separate us from our destination which is to be at home with you. Lord, help us by your spirit to be reminded of the hope that we have as your children. That you whisper to us, you are mine. And we can know with sure hope that we are yours. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.